0: Hey there, listeners, you are in store for something special. In this episode of EM Over Easy, we're coming to you live from ACOEP Spring Seminar 2021, just recently recorded, and we had a chance to talk to Rick Pescator, a EM and public health guru. He had just finished giving a talk about public health and emergency medicine, and we had a chance to have a more casual conversation with him. ACOEP, you say, yes, that's the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians. And in case you've been living behind a rock or just not listening to us, we are the official podcast of the ACOEP. So as part of that, we get to do these great sessions with some of the key speakers at their conferences where we have a more open conversation than a traditional lecture. So sit back, relax, and take in what we're calling the intersection of public health and emergency medicine, something that is so incredibly important to us as emergency medicine physicians not just now during a pandemic. Rick, why why public health and, and why now? Yeah, so
1: I think it's a good question. I think the answer is public health because now. Um, and uh, listen, I had this opportunity a little over a year ago now um, at a time when it was needed um, and a time when it was clearly going to become Uh, a significant portion of our country's response to COVID-19. I jumped in. I haven't looked back too much. I'm still fortunate to work in the emergency department simultaneously. Um, So I'm getting the best of both worlds, but seeing a whole new one.
0: So we've seen a lot of emergency medicine physicians over the past year get involved with public health in some form or fashion on a pretty public level. Um, you know, A lot of the the who's who in emergency medicine have been on the uh, cable news networks, have been on local news networks, have had op-eds and newspapers. Um, I think we can all agree and we can talk a little bit about how public health is really important in emergency medicine. Uh, we're, we're that the, the front door to medicine in general, to the hospital, to the community. So we, we have a big voice in it. But you didn't just go with a media route and putting your opinion out there, you really dove into the nitty gritty of public health. So what was that decision like?
1: Uh, I I would love to hear that. So yeah, uh, I'll uh, put it out. So I I have a friend and mentor who is um, my current boss who was an attending of mine in residency but was also a mentor throughout medical school. Um, and he um, came to me one night. um, We were um, talking about sort of what was coming and, and, you know, uh, what we all knew was just weeks away, sort of this change of our lives and this uh, fundamental shift in in our day to day. Um, And he was already becoming overwhelmed with the amount of uh, work that was coming his way as the state medical director and and presented this opportunity opportunity to me um, and it was uh, easy to say yes it was easy to say you know I'm, I'm happy to serve I'm happy to have the opportunity to uh, fight back on what is going to be a defining thing of all of our lives um, and the next day I walked into work
2: So Rick as, as you as you've transformed you know again from moving, a part of your clinical time uh, to public health, I think it's important for the, uh, the listeners to know you had started kind of a private clinic even before this. And how, did, how, did, how have you balanced that? So you've got, I mean, also the listeners don't know, you have a wife who's an OBGYN. You're, you're an EM doc. You had a private kind of, um, you had a private clinic that focused on pain, chronic pain. And then now you're doing this public health stuff. How did you find balance in doing that over the last year knowing that I imagine some of those had very significant um, time time constraints.
0: Yeah, Let, let's not listen. forget those two adorable. Kids yeah, and to two adorable kids' your, not uh, Twitter well. I got two accounts kids. from yeah, time got, to time. Yeah.
1: I got a big dog. Um, <laughs> yeah, listen, I, I'll be honest. I, I didn't. I've not balanced things well in my life, and I'm not going to try and pretend that I have. Um, I love emergency medicine and I have leaned hard into emergency medicine over the years and I have gotten involved in a lot of stuff as of you and as have all of us um, and poured everything I've had into this specialty, into education, into um, you know, being an emergency physician. I also, um, as part of my passion for medicine, started a clinic, and as part of my passion for medicine, have done other things, and I have let other things fall by the wayside in the interim, and let me stand as a, a you know, glaring warning to anyone that might come after me. Um, it has not been an easy path in any way, shape, or form, and it would not have been a successful path in any way, shape, or form without that wife and kids who have supported me at every step along the way. Um, But I've had to adjust along the way as well. I've had to... That clinic is now my former clinic, and and fortunately, we are able to pass that clinic and patients along to another provider. Um, You know, I have reduced my clinical time. I've reduced my research activities to be able to fit everything in, and, um, you know, I, I think that... Um, The pandemic has given us all a new perspective on a lot of things, but the biggest thing it's done for me is put my family as the number one priority, whereas perhaps that's not where they were before. Um, And that was a mistake of mine.
3: So when you decided to make this leap into uh, public health, and it's interesting because I guess one of the questions is, is it really that much of a leap, Um, what did you find was... um, was were the most natural crossover abilities, you know, uh, I can certainly envision it and know uh, You know, there are a lot of subspecialties already out there where EM is is very involved um, But this one, you know does kind of seem a little bit newer But it does seem like there would be some natural skills that would cross over what would what would give people a leg up? If they really like certain aspects of emergency medicine
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, I think EM is so well positioned for public health. Um, It's the ability to make decisions on limited information. It's the ability to know a little bit about a lot, um, which has always come in very important. The ability to understand vulnerable populations. And I think that we in emergency medicine have good insight into those populations better than perhaps other specialties because of what we deal with every day in the emergency department. So I'll give a, a little bit of an example, which is one of the more exciting things I, I've been able to do in public health, is early on in the pandemic, um, we didn't have tests, right? Remember, nobody, there, there weren't tests anywhere. You couldn't get a test no matter what. Um, but we had people dying. We had people coming into emergency departments and filling them up and we simply couldn't test. Um, and in the limited testing Uh, operations that we could do, we knew that certain communities were uh, particularly high, had particularly high levels of viral spread. Um, And one community in particular that we were worried about in southern Delaware uh, was the community surrounding poultry plants. Um, And these are particularly vulnerable individuals of a, um, you know, particularly disadvantaged socioeconomic status, um, with high levels of um, uh, social vulnerability. And uh, these people were dying. Um, And so what we did um, was uh, two ER docs, me and my mentor uh, came up with this plan to use lateral flow antibody testing to identify IgM as a surrogate for positive PCR. Um, And so we know, for example, that if you have a positive IgM, you have an acute phase reactant. And early on in the pandemic, in the first few weeks of this, that was a reasonable surrogate for a positive PCR simply because the pandemic hadn't been going on that long. So if you came home to a broken window, you knew the robber still had to be in the house simply because you hadn't been gone long enough for him to escape. So we deployed these point-of-care antibody tests into the, that space, and we backed it up with PCR for any positives. and we found such a high number of positive people that we were able to quickly isolate, remove from the care space, and really stop progression of COVID within this highly vulnerable community. And that's only something that could be done by ER doctors who can understand the population, who can understand that, yeah, it's not a perfect test. There's, there's definite downsides to doing this, but there's a lot more good than there is bad here. We're not going to let perfection become the enemy of good. And we're going to do a lot of good based on what we're able to, the decisions we are able to make.
2: Yeah, I love that you mentioned that it's not perfect, right? So um, I love it how, and having followed Rick on Twitter pretty religiously as one of the people that I went to to look for information about COVID, I remember watching kind of a dialogue of you going through this explanation and you kept on using it's not perfect as an answer. And I love, because that's what we do in the emergency department. The care I give is not perfect. I'm not going to order every test. I'm not going to... Every patient's not going to leave with a diagnosis, but we can rule out the bad things, uh, find find some bad things, and then also kind of work it out from there. So as you kind of initially put this test into place, what were some of the barriers you saw there, and how was being an EM physician help you kind of get over that?
1: Yeah, so big barriers were uh, coming from all different sides, right? First barrier, other physicians, right? So uh, there are a lot of voices at the table and a lot of people who make very good points, but you have to be able to speak the speak and be able to talk the talk and be able to talk to these other physicians and be able to cite your evidence-based medicine and use your Fagan nomograms and your frequentist statistics and your Bayesian statistics and be able to talk about likelihood ratios. You got to be able to do that stuff. Um, and that that's a challenge, but emergency medicine and, you know, the EBM that has been pushed by foam in particular I think really empowers emergency physicians to be able to function at that table and have a strong strong voice you know other barriers are operational um, you know you need to be able to take a strategic vision and say I want to be able to test people and, and operationalize it and emergency emergency physicians are fantastic at getting it done right We have this problem we got to figure out how to actually physically come up with a solution and implement it if I have that problem in the hospital I'm going to an
0: ER doc So then where'd it go? You know, you you had this amazing, amazing solution initially to a problem, honestly, that a solution many of us probably wish we had also uh, in real time, right? As I was waiting, we were all waiting weeks for positive tests to come back on patients that maybe had already been discharged, maybe had already died, maybe, I mean, whatever. Um, So now once you started settling into, this is into the pandemic, what was next? You know, how did you go from that that true emergency, um, like we deal with in the first few minutes of resuscitation, to to now? You know, you're talking about the equivalent of uh, we're we're titrating pressors and vent settings and things like that.
1: I love that analogy, and you're exactly right. Like that antibody incursion was the first 15 minutes, and you know, perhaps was you know a lot of thoughts that this isn't. Perfect, right? This isn't PCR testing for every single person, or this isn't, you know, the presser I would choose. But after that 15 minutes was where I sort of moved away from my emergency medicine mindset and began to move into more of the intensivist approach to this thing, which was a sustainable, viable community-led PCR testing apparatus. And, and here in Delaware, we have a tremendous PCR testing apparatus that we were able to implement once those reagents and once that testing capability was brought online, and you know we had, we were able to stop the bleeding early on, and then we were able to, once those, once we were able to stop the bleeding, that corresponded well with the increasing availability of PCR, and we were able to transition to life support.
2: So Rick, I I imagine one thing being involved in public health is, of course, as you mentioned, the rapid intake of information. What was kind of um, the struggle initially, and maybe even in a sustainability model of how did you guys maintain good information cuz i'm sure you guys had data in delaware and then you had and then i'm sure you guys were wanting to check that out with jersey you know uh philly new york city places that were close but sometimes there was always a concern if the data you were receiving was good how did you guys go about kind of interpreting that
1: yeah, great question, and there's a lot of data, and epidemiology Epidemiology and data sharing are comes kind of the bulwarks of public health, and epidemiology and um, data interpretation is foundational in public health. And uh, data sharing early on was incredibly important, um, comparing our positivity rates to positivity rates of the jurisdictions immediately surrounding us, uh, but then also double, trickle, triple, and quadruple checking our data sources. Um, we have a requirement in Delaware, for example, that providers, um, as well as laboratories have to report all positives and negatives to the public health authority. And that enables us to have better insight into the true number of tests done, better insight into our test positivity rate, et cetera, et cetera. And so that sort of layers upon layer of, um, you know, uh, an iterative process and to some degree a repetitive process uh, ensure data integrity. At the same time, we're running our own validation trials. So there was more than one time where I was strapping on a Tyvek suit early on before we really knew anything and going into war where we had positive COVID people isolated, um, and comparing different test types, trying to trying to identify point of care antigen tests early on March of last year, we're trying to validate point of care antigen tests. Uh, we're trying to identify what specimen sources uh, were most viable. Right early on, remember, all we did was nasopharyngeal testing, but you know very quickly we got to oropharyngeal testing and uh, uh, sputum testing and anterior nares testing, and that was all through public health and CDC and researchers uh, doing this in the field testing, comparing different respiratory specimen sample types.
3: So Rick, you're doing a, a clearly a, a lot of different things in your in your job. It, it sounds like it's highly uh, highly variable. One of the things that that I that really struck it out with me was when you're talking about being able to speak to different uh, different groups with different voices, and that's one thing. Uh, in emergency medicine, we have to do a lot of dialect shifting. We we may speak to a young patient in a different way than we speak to uh, an elderly patient, in a different way than we would speak to one of our consultants. Um, and one of the things that I'm uh, a little bit curious about is how much um, interaction do you have? Because clearly, um, public health has uh, an interface with uh, with government. How much do you do you? Uh, find that you're providing um, information or having to speak uh, in terms of policy uh, to either a state or um, national leadership? And, and how did you, um, how have you found ways to do that successfully?
1: Um, so public health is frequently asked for input on a variety of making and legislative issues. Um, and certainly during COVID-19, uh, our state health official, our director of public health, um, is by the side of the governor on a regular basis, lending uh, insight and expertise, as well as our state medical director, who's also an emergency physician. Um, and, and that is critical. Um, and at every step along the way, public health has uh, been where data has driven decisions um, in uh, the COVID-19 support throughout the state. Uh, and that's been constant... Uh, in many states throughout the union. Um, But that public health role is not confined to COVID-19 alone. Uh, There's frequent need for for testimony on a variety of bills that touch the public health space, whether that be public health's uh, ability to quarantine other individuals, whether that be commentary on uh, legislation that discusses uh, uh, chronic Lyme disease or or, uh, legislation that discusses vaccines for children. Uh, All of these legislation frequently require input from uh, healthcare and public health experts. Um, And it's a challenge to uh, be able to provide uh, detailed and expert level commentary on such a broad array of um, pieces. But if there's, you know, a specialty of medicine that's well designed to be able to provide commentary across the spectrum of disease, it's certainly emergency medicine.
2: So, Rick, as you were going through this, <clears throat> I imagine misinformation was a big issue that you had to deal with, both from input from constituents, and then when you put information out, that there maybe was a lack of public trust. How did you kind of deal with both sides of that misinformation um, situation? Situation.
1: Yeah, I'm privileged to work with this fantastic team of communications. We have uh, our office of. Um, uh, Health Crisis Response, our Office of uh, Health Communication, um, that ensure that there's a constant dialogue between the public and public health. Um, and we have to listen as much as we talk, because just as you say, we need to be able to hear what misinformation is out there, what questions the public has. Um, and our our um, Office of Communications does a fantastic job of ensuring sort of a constant flow of information out through media outlets, a lot of that through press releases or interviews, sort of just like this, interview after interview on Zoom with reporters to address sort of common misconceptions or common myths that are out there about COVID. You know, at the same time, the beyond that reactivity, there's so much proactivity involved with our uh, communications office. And that includes everything from education campaigns and billboards to videos describing, for example, how the vaccine was made, um, or even uh, proactively uh, putting out um, research papers or or, uh, white papers uh, that describe public health interventions. And so health Communication is a specialty all in it of its own, and I'm really lucky to be able to work with uh, communications professionals that that do a fantastic job uh, relaying an important message.
0: So I'm curious. Speaking of messaging, obviously we're we're nowhere near done with this pandemic uh, yet. Although maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. How has messaging and how has your role in public health shifted as we move from? I mean, full bore pandemic and just trying to put out the fire of the virus itself now to vaccination, right? We, we still have that part uh, that hasn't gone away, but we've really transitioned into focus on vaccination. So what has that meant to you?
1: Yeah, that, that's really important. Um, and, and we've certainly seen that, that there's, there's been this shift of focus um, away from testing and toward uh, vaccination. And that's fine. And we need to get vaccination done. And there's no higher priority than vaccination right now. Um, my largest responsibilities lie in testing, however. And I um, really claim that uh, oversight of testing as one of my primary areas of responsibility. And so from a communication standpoint, the continued importance of testing has been an important, um, uh, speaking point. Uh, it's been an important discussion point and an important, uh, topic that we've tried to get out to the populace. That being said, um, uh, messaging on vaccine has been one of the most important communication topics that we've encountered, um, in my, all of my time, right? When we talk about messaging surrounding the vaccine, uh, Limiting vaccine hesitancy and bringing information to the masses so they can make informed choices um, is uh, such an important task that public health has been called upon for um, that I've been uh, certainly honored to participate in that as well. And that's ranged from everything from making videos to doing interviews uh, to simply going out in the community and meeting people and answering their questions. Often there's nothing better you can do than going to a local community center and having a conversation with community activists so that they can spread your message.
0: So bring in public health back into the emergency department, I feel like we're at a phase right now with vaccinations where we really can have a significant impact on p- people's perception and maybe willingness to get vaccinated. You know, conversations I had about um, the virus itself getting tested, exposure um, were, were somewhat limited. You know, hey, wear a mask, be safe. Have you been around anyone sick? I need to test you, you're quarantined. You know, th- th- it was all kind of cookie cutter um, in a lot of ways. You know, once we got into the, the, the flow of things, now I'm having different conversations. I'm having conversations in no matter what a patient comes in complaining of, hey, have you been vaccinated? Are you planning on getting vaccinated? Can I answer any questions for you about the, the vaccine, the vaccine process and all that? So it really is, in, at least in my small part, bringing public health now back into the emergency department where maybe I can make an impact. How are you handling that conversation in the emergency department? What, what are you doing um, to bring your, your second job, maybe your primary job at this point, back to, back to EM?
1: Well, you know, having that conversation is in it of itself such an important component, and I think it's so tremendous that you're having that conversation and you're starting that conversation with a question, you know, what questions can I answer for you? There's Everybody's aware of the vaccine by now. Nobody's uh, surprised that there's a vaccine for COVID, Um, but we continue to have staggeringly high rates of uh, lack of vaccine uptake in certain communities. And there's different reasons across different communities for why that's the case. Sometimes it's misinformation. Sometimes it's distrust. Uh, you know, there's variety of other, uh, uh, reasons why people are uptaking vaccination at this time. And so that conversation really begins with understanding why the individual in front of you is not accepting the vaccine. Um, and if it's fear, if it's misinformation, if it's, you know, distrust, each one of those can be addressed independently. When we target our public health interventions, we are in the emergency department able to target that intervention from the population to the individual level. And if, just because it's at the individual level doesn't mean it's not a public health intervention. There's good data to suggest that a targeted vaccination can prevent viral spread about 10 times more effectively than an untargeted vaccination. So, identifying individuals who are particularly high risk for bad outcomes for COVID 19 or those individuals who are in contact with individuals who are at risk for bad outcomes from COVID 19 can save lives. Yeah, I'm really glad Drew brought this question up because
2: I feel like I'm asking it so many times now on a clinical shift. It's just part of my, 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 my current question set Have you been vaccinated for COVID 19? Let's say they say no. What are some key follow-up questions we as emergency physicians should be asking our patients to kind of tease out maybe the reasoning why they're not getting involved, or even some of the questions we can ask to maybe help us convince them to want to get vaccinated?
1: Yeah, my, my question, it's part of my question set now, and my question is as simple as what can I do to help you get vaccinated? And, and, and the reason for that is then it brings out, oh, you know, I, is it as simple as I can't get an appointment? Because if it's that, then we can we can fix that. If it's something more deep or something a little bit different, uh, then we can begin that conversation. You know, it brings up the fact that, you know, we still do have access barriers to vaccination at this time. We're at a place right now where supply is still uh, behind behind demand. Uh, we anticipate that in the coming weeks that that will invert and that will be much better. Um, but if we're still in a situation with our patients where um, they there is demand and supply is not meeting that demand, that's a systems issue. And In our emergency departments, if we begin to identify individuals, a high rate of individuals who are seeking vaccinations and not able to obtain same, it gives us the opportunity to intervene upon a systems level and deliver vaccine to our patients in the ED.
3: So... One of the things, and this uh, tends to happen all the time now, is that we've um, is that we've spent a good amount of time talking about uh, COVID, and it's obviously an important topic. But um, we know that public health encompasses so much more, um, and there are the things that probably we as emergency physicians are are familiar with, uh, the uh, opiate crisis uh, as a matter of public health, as well as. Uh, increasing mental health issues that may that were already a problem before COVID and data is suggesting maybe even more of a problem now. Um, but what I would like to know is w- were there things that you discovered um, or what things did you discover um, that really weren't on your radar as an EM physician um, but were surprising and now the, now you can kind of see links that maybe you couldn't see before because your perspective is different?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I've learned and seen so much in the past year, things that I never really would have considered, a lot of it being the sort of follow-up stuff that I always considered would be there and just assumed was uh, established by somebody. Uh, Great examples being, if I have a patient with tuberculosis who's going to get directly observed therapy for tuberculosis, where exactly does that happen? It turns out it happens in the public health clinic of which I now direct. Um, If a patient needs to get um, penicillin every week for the next three weeks, where does that happen? It happens in my clinics, right? So these are things that I, I was surprised to find, but also just a, an absolute cornucopia of a world of maternal child health, of uh, early childhood intervention programs. You know, when my when my oldest daughter was one year old and had yet to really begin talking, and now she talks far too much, we had early intervention services come to our house and, you know, uh, tell us that everything would be fine, but, you know, a good resource early on. It turns out that that, that was Public Health who sent that early intervention resource. And so all these resources that the public is able to take advantage of, this multi-layered, multi-faceted, and really rich uh, cornucopia of resources um, that the public can take advantage of has been uh, really startling, startling to behold and to be a part of.
0: So let's, let's bring things back to emergency medicine and the people listening to us right now. So Rick, what would be your takeaways from your your year plus in public health at this point to, for the EM provider, you know, what, what can we bring back to the emergency department and and what would you say at the same time for the EM providers that are interested in getting more involved in public health?
1: Sure. So I, I- I think the takeaways here are you're already doing public health, right? It, it begins with as simple as a question, but then there's there's other sort of evidence-based interventions in emergency medicine, which are public health driven, whether that be secondary geriatric fall prevention, which has always been a, a, an important thing to me, you know, whether that be understanding that writing a script for amlodipine from the emergency department is not betraying your ER ancestors. And it turns out it actually helps patients, right? Like, so there are things you can do in ER, you know, remembering that if you're treating for PID or cervicitis, that consider, duration of HIV and syphilis should be had, right? As simple as that. Those are public health interventions. And then serving as the safety net for the most vulnerable populations in our country, the ER is doing way more than enough in the public health already. But certainly, if emergency physicians want to get more involved in public health, there's nothing but opportunity. That opportunity begins as simple on the individual level, advocacy near the home, saying, you know, I believe in this. I think that this topic is important. And I therefore, I want to stand up as a physician expert and I want to speak, with, speak about it because physicians are loud voices and by uh, it is inherent that as as a physician, when you stand up and speak, that people will listen more closely than they will others. But then there's opportunities, both in governmental and non-governmental public health, and those opportunities are only growing. We are in Delaware, in fact, today, believe that we'll probably be adding another physician position. uh, And and this is happening simultaneously as EM is shrinking in the job market. We know this, right? And as the public health job market expands, it's only gonna be a better source for emergency physicians to find their place. Um, And so keeping an eye um, out for for opportunities in public health, and knowing that your skill set as an emergency physician more than prepares you to be a public health physician, I think is important.
0: Rick, thank you again so much because the forty minutes you spent talking to us about public health was uh, inspiring and uh, very eye-opening. So thank you for the hard work you've been doing. Of course, thanks for everyone for the hard work they're doing in their local uh, departments for for spreading the public health narrative uh, as we're dealing with the pandemic and much more. So uh, this is an awesome session. Thanks everyone for listening. Wanna make the world a better place take a look at yourself and just...